there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Carolyn! Comes at the table. Carolyn! Why can't Bonita or Junior or any of the other little monsters do it? I'm getting ready. Don't sass me. Aren't you wearing a lot of makeup? Oh, mother. I'm home. Smells good in here. Tell that to your oldest daughter, who thinks family dinner is a jail sentence. Happy to be locked up with you two. Carolyn, why are you all done up? Daddy, my hair's in curlers. Take those out and go wash your face. You're 14 years old, not 20, and you should look your age. I don't see Harriet Garner wearing makeup or t-shirts. We all must watch ourselves. Harriet Garner is a wet rag. I told Peggy I'd meet her at the Southway. On a school night? Daddy, don't be so square. I don't know what that means, but I don't like it. Now get your brother and sisters and we'll have dinner. I can't just leave Peggy waiting alone. We have to watch ourselves, right? Carolyn, go on. Have a good time. Mary, I don't need an argument tonight, and she's had a rough week. I'll be back before nine. Oh, you scared me. Carolyn Loretta Wazalewski left home the night of November 8th, 1954, at about 6.15 p.m. She was supposed to meet Peggy Lamana, a friend two years her senior at 645, so they could sign up for dance classes at Morrill Park Elementary School. But Peggy never saw her that night, and in fact, none of her family or friends reported seeing her alive ever again. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the murder of Carolyn Wazalewski. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. Our case today takes place in the 1950s. You might have some ideas about what that decade was like. Poodle skirts and bobby socks. Gleaming cars and wide-open roads. Everything seemed neon and pristine. The suburbs boomed, and sentiments were relatively calm after the Second World War. Of course, the 50s were far from the pleasant stereotype. It was long before the Civil Rights Act, and as such, 
racial segregation in schools, and other discriminatory practices were still legal. Polio infected thousands of children every summer. It was the height of the Cold War, and across the country, schools and cities performed air raid drills so they would be prepared for an attack at any moment. In a time where the status quo was to be clean-cut, there was a counterculture rumbling below the surface. Rock and roll made its debut and jolted many adults at the time. In the 1955 film Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean embodied an entire generation of emotionally confused and often delinquent teenagers. Greasers, made popular later by the aptly titled movie Grease, prided themselves on living on the edge. Also called drapes and drapettes, greasers set themselves apart from the squares who tried to fit in and follow the rules. The greaser subculture is parodied in the movie Crybaby, which was inspired by the murder of Carolyn Wozolowski. Henry Winkler's The Fonz and West Side Story also explore the cliques who wore leather jackets, Levi's, and lots of pomade. Drapes and drapettes were usually working-class kids who didn't quite fit in with their peers. So instead of trying to make friends with everyone, this group of outsiders banded together and acted tough. They learned about mechanics in school and taught themselves how to soup up their cars. They formed gangs of their own and loved to bully anybody they didn't like or just didn't know. Carolyn was part of a gang like this, the Drapes. Thanks, mister. Have a good day. Yeah, you too, kid. Hey, Lefty. Look at this square. Who, me? Who, me? Leave him alone. He's just a little spaz. Oh, come on, Carolyn. We just want to get to know him. Where are you from, Rugrat? Uh, uh... Okay, okay. Forget that question. How about this one? Want to fight? Uh, no, I, I don't actually. I just want to go to school. Aw, oh, he wants to go to school. This cat's a real nosebleed. No, you know, that's fair. He says he doesn't want to fight, so... Bound him. The Drapes gang that Carolyn ran with picked fights, shoplifted, and robbed stores and homes. Carolyn started hanging out with them in the early 1950s, before she was a teenager. And by age 13, she was frequently running away from home. By all appearances, her rebellion didn't stem from problems at home. The Wazalewskis, parents Stanley and Mary, plus the seven children from the youngest to the oldest, Bonita, Stanley Jr., Tinia, Charlotte, Linda, Jackie, and Carolyn, all lived in close quarters in Morrill Park. It was a working-class neighborhood, plain brick row houses surrounded by empty lots, not too far from the train tracks. Not pretty, but convenient to her father's workplace. It was fairly quiet, but Carolyn wanted freedom and fun and excitement. Why won't you let me do anything? You don't even care about me. You're my daughter. Do you really believe that? Maybe I do. And you didn't deny it. I'm leaving. Oh, no, you're not. Watch me. Carolyn would run away for weeks at a time, never telling her family where she was or who she was with. But eventually, she always came home. Mom? Baby? Hi, Mom. Carolyn. I'm sorry, Mom. I don't want to worry you. I want to do well in school and help babysit and be a good daughter. 
I'm just glad you're home. I'll try to be good, I promise. After the last time she ran away in summer of 1953, about a year before her final disappearance, her parents had just about given up. Not knowing what else to do, they sent her to the House of the Good Shepherd, which at the time was a residence for women and girls. They didn't know how else to make Carolyn stop running away. And it worked for a while. After she returned home, she was calmer, she listened to her parents, and helped with her brothers and sisters. She became a model student, but her old friends were still in the neighborhood. No homework tonight? I'm giving you a break, so enjoy it. Carolyn, just a quick second before you leave for the day. Yes, Mrs. Leidig? I just wanted to say how much I appreciate your effort over the last couple of months. I really see your improvement, which is why I wanted to give you back your test early. Congratulations on your A. Golly! Oh, that's swell. I mean, wonderful. My parents will be so happy. Thank you so much. All I did was grade it. You did the work. Thank you. See you Monday. Hey, Carolyn. Oh, hey, Lefty. Where you been? You know where I've been. Yeah, and you're out of that good shepherd dump now, so why are you still acting like a nun? Stop it. Hey, Carolyn. How are you, Joshua? Joshua? <laughs> What's Joshua? Everybody calls me the eye, because I'm always watching everything. Or do they wash your brain in the nunnery? Whatever. Hey, you're being a real drag. You're bringing us down. So get lost. Hey, there's Pegs. She won't talk to Pegs like that. Peggy! Pegs! <laughs> What's shaking, boys? Hi, Carolyn. Oh, we want Carolyn to come to the bash tonight. Carolyn, if Peggy asks you, will you come to the bash tonight? Come with us! Look, we're not trying to rattle your cage. Oh, we just miss you is all. I haven't spoken with you in so long. We can definitely ditch these cats once they give us a ride. What do you say? Please? Well, I do always have fun with you. Even these jokers aren't so bad if I don't have to look at them. <laughs> There's the wit we've been missing. Come on, we'll drive you home. Through the summer of 1954, Carolyn and her friends spent a lot of time hanging out by their cars, at drive-in restaurants, and in parking lots. That's how 14-year-old Carolyn met Paul, six years her senior. 20-year-old Paul had two hobbies, meeting girls and stealing cars. He thought Carolyn was gorgeous. After all, when she curled her hair, put makeup on, and dressed up, she really did look 20, not 14. And Carolyn thought Paul was the coolest boy she'd ever met, though he did get into a lot of trouble. Come on, Paul, I gotta get back. Hold your horses, baby. Shine the flashlight under the steering wheel, would you? I'm supposed to be back by 10. Can't you see I'm working on a project? There we go. Now quick, get in, before someone finds us. This is crazy. It's a real screamer, ain't it? Hey, I want to give you something. A gift? For little old me? In my wallet. First pocket. Your picture. You look good. But why you gotta have that cigarette dangling from your mouth like that? Aw, oh, come on. You sound like my old lady. I'm sorry. You look real cool. I just can't show this to my parents. Why would you do that anyway? The picture isn't for your parents. It's for you. So you don't forget me. How could I? Look, 
I'll even make a note on the photo. Paul is a real gone lad, sweet little thing. There, now I really won't forget you. I got my notes right here. I am real gone for you, Peaches. It was teenage love, all right, and they were all in. But like many young romances, this one ran hot and cold. Only a couple months later, Carolyn and Paul broke up, though she was still sweet on him. While it may have seemed like the end of a brief and passionate bout of young love, this breakup proved to have fatal consequences. We'll find out exactly how after this message. Now, back to the story. Towards the end of the summer of 1954, 14-year-old Carolyn Wazalewski and her 20-year-old sweetheart Paul broke up. By all accounts, Carolyn still had a thing for Paul and did not take the breakup well. She tried to distract herself by going on other dates. One in particular was with Frankie, a Baltimore Transit employee who was about 30 years old. Here we are. You ever been here before? Yeah, I've been here. Hi there. What can I get for you? Anything you want, Carolyn. I'll just have a Coke float and some onion rings. Onion rings? You said I could have whatever I wanted. I'll have a cheeseburger and a root beer. Oh, and fries. Fries, too. You got it, boss. Are you having a good time, Carolyn? Sure, Frankie. Doesn't seem like it. I got stuff on my mind. Like what? I don't know. Oh, hey, there's Pegs. Peggy! Yoo-hoo! Hey, Carolyn. Did Paul get a new... Oh, sorry. I didn't see you there. I'm Peggy. I thought you were someone else. Frankie, nice to meet you. You gotta see this. Lefty's standing on top of his car and balancing an entire basket of fries on his head. (laughs) He's crazy. Come on. Frankie, I gotta split. I'm sorry. Thanks for the ride. You can have my onion rings. We don't know exactly what happened on her date with Frankie, but it didn't go well. Perhaps due to the fact that he was more than twice her age. Next, she dated an oil truck driver, also older, but that didn't go well either. He would meet her at the bus stop at Washington Boulevard and Gable Street almost every day after school. Hey, Carolyn. Hey, Johnny. I thought you had a route today. I did. I got off early. Can I walk you home? I don't know. I think I can walk myself for a while. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. I'm tired, too. Carolyn, you doing all right? Oh, hi, Mr. Garrett. How are you? I'm doing all right. Is this fella a friend of yours? We were just saying goodbye. All right then, Carolyn. Have a good evening. Good night, Mr. Garrett. You got the Secret Service doing rounds? That's Ralph Garrett. He's just my neighbor. Looks out for me, you know? I'll see you around, okay? I could drive you home. No, thank you. The last distraction from Paul was a double date with her 15-year-old friend and two boys that were 18 and 19 years old. It was unforgettable, and for all the wrong reasons. On this double date, Carolyn's friend was sexually assaulted. The friend pressed charges, and on November 1st, 1954, about a week before Carolyn was murdered, she testified on her friend's behalf. And is this man, 
who you say attacked your friend in August of this year, 1954. Is he in this room? He is. Can you point to that man and tell me where he is? It's that man sitting behind the table there. Will the court recognize that Carolyn Wazilewski has accused the defendant as the man who violated our plaintiff? Later, her friend thanked Carolyn. Carolyn, wait up. Oh, hey. Hey, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Are you joking? I'm sorry for you. I'm glad I could help out. Do you want to come out tonight? Uh, I'm going to lay low for a while. I think my parents are going to make me. All right. Call me if you change your mind. At the beginning of November 1954, Carolyn was at the Southway, a local hangout, when she encountered a friend of the man that she had accused. I'll be right back. I'm going to powder my nose. Hey, Carolyn, right? Yes. Excuse me. I'd like to get by. I'm sure you would. Yes. So please move over. I wanted to tell you, you really goofed up a couple of weeks ago. How so? My buddy's got a record because of you. Your friend's a fast girl who changed her mind after the fact. Me and my gang are trying to stay away from the heat, and you're not helping. If you want to stay out of jail, stop barricading innocent girls by the bathroom. Leave me alone, or I'll report you. Like hell you will. No one really knows what happened when they met each other that night, but we do know that this man assaulted Carolyn in November of 1954, leaving her with bruises. He'd previously been charged with car theft and just released from jail that spring. He was from a town called Arbutus in Baltimore County, and the man had a reputation for beating his girlfriends. One week after the encounter with the Arbutus man, Carolyn left home and never came back. It was about 6.15 p.m. on November 8, 1954. She went out to meet Peggy at the Southway. They were going to walk from there to Morrill Park Elementary to sign up for dance classes. I'll be back before 9. You scared me. When Carolyn didn't return before 9 p.m., her parents went out driving to look for her. They were afraid she'd once again run away. Try Washington Boulevard. Maybe she and Peggy are walking back from the school. Wouldn't they be back by now? Stanley, I don't know where else to look. I feel like we've combed the entire city. This is fine timing. Pull over. While the Wazalewskis were out, an air raid alert sounded from the Maryland civil defense officials across Baltimore and five nearby counties. During the Cold War, air raid drills were happening all over the U.S. Usually the drills were scheduled and used to prepare large cities for an unexpected attack. Baltimore area citizens were informed that the alert was to happen at some point in the 72 hours between November 8th at midnight and November 10th at 11.59 p.m. Whenever the siren went off, the streets were to be cleared, and everyone outside would have to find immediate shelter. The Wazalewskis had to pull over and wait until the all-clear signal, temporarily halting the search for their daughter. Somewhere in the city, Carolyn was still alive, possibly with her murderer hearing the same siren. 
If Carolyn was outside and in trouble, the siren had just erased the chances of someone finding her and being able to help. The next morning, around 7 a.m., the inbound train to Baltimore lumbered down the tracks in Mount Washington. This was about eight miles north from where Carolyn lived. As they neared the Belvedere Avenue Bridge, the engineers received a message to switch tracks. Okay, Larry, at this point you gotta slow down just a little bit as you approach the switch. Make sure you know your signals and follow directions. I don't want to come back from Key West and find my train in shambles. Relax, I got it. Any particular reason we had to switch tracks here? Who knows? Could be a repair situation. Your job isn't to know why, it's to execute the orders. Hey, that doesn't look like a repair situation. That looks like someone's on the rails. Is she moving? Hey, be careful. People are crowded around. You don't know what they're gonna do. Slow down. The passengers on the train lurched forward as the train slowed, getting a good look at the crowd that was starting to gather around Carolyn's body on the adjacent train tracks. If the train conductors hadn't been paying attention, they might have run over the whole scene. But they were able to switch tracks before they got to the growing crowd surrounding a tiny five-foot-two body. Soon, the police were called. Captain George Mintians and Lieutenant Fred Dunn checked out the scene. Not the most beautiful setting for a morning walk, eh, Captain? It is, if you're a bum or a kid playing hooky. Yeah, I've seen a lot of no-goods come around here. Homeless, wanderers, drapes and drapettes looking for a place to have a party. Uh, why is there always a crowd? Dunn, get him back, would you? I don't have patience for that this morning. All right, everyone, stand back. Please, please give us some space to do our work. What is it, Dunn? Someone had too much to drink? I'm... afraid not, sir. Come look. God damn it. Pulse? No. Someone had a real problem with her. Beat her up good. And look at this. What's that on her thigh? Paul. Looks like it was written in lipstick. Is Paul the kind of sicko who writes his name on a victim's thigh before he- Done. Best to hold off on your theories. Let's at least make her decent before anyone else gets here. Leave her alone. Investigators gotta snap photos. Can't I even pull her shirt down? Let's find some canvas or a coat from one of the shops nearby. We can cover her up at least. Carolyn was face down on the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks that morning of Tuesday, November 9, 1954, the day after she was supposed to meet Peggy. Blood from a head wound soaked her pink T-shirt and bra, which were pulled up around her neck, around her black scarf. Her white socks were still on, but her skirt and shoes were gone. From her right ear dangled one broken earring. The coroner's report showed that the cause of death was a fractured skull, she also had a fractured jaw and two broken ribs, skin lacerations, and bruises and contusions of the right eye and right knee. There were multiple abrasions on the front of her body, and her right ring finger was broken. There was no sign of sexual assault. Partly because there was little blood on the tracks, and because there were burrs in Carolyn's hair and on her clothes, 
it was determined that she had been killed somewhere else and then dragged to the tracks. The time of death was estimated to be about 11 p.m. And because the last train went through the area at 10.30 p.m. and the body was still intact, investigators estimated that the body was dragged onto the tracks after 10.30 p.m. Carolyn's mother, Mary, heard about the dead woman found on the tracks that morning. She tried to dismiss it, hoping it was a different woman, older than her daughter. She prayed that Carolyn would walk through her front door. Carolyn? Honey? It's just me. No sign of her? I've driven around. I thought maybe she went hiding somewhere after the air raid drill. But I've looked everywhere. Asked everyone. Peggy's mom said Carolyn never met up with Peggy last night. Maybe she never intended to meet with her in the first place. It's the first time I've ever hoped that she lied to us. On the afternoon of November 9th, the day after Carolyn left home, the Wazalewskis reported Carolyn missing. Later that night, they were called to the city morgue to identify a body. At this point, the body found on the train tracks that morning had remained unidentified for about 12 hours. At 7 p.m. Tuesday, November 9th, Stanley went to the morgue alone. Right this way, Mr. Was... Mr. Was... Uh, uh, Just call me Wells. It's easier for most people. Sure. Wells. Are you ready? Of course. Carolyn has run away before. It's usually just a matter of being patient, I suppose. Teenagers, you know. All right. Just a formality, then. Is this your daughter, sir? (sighs) Yes. It is her. I'll... uh, go back upstairs now. (sighs) Sir? Sir? Carolyn's father, Stanley, collapsed at the morgue. For the next three months, the Baltimore papers were covered in stories about Carolyn Wazalewski's murder. The search for the culprit was countywide. We'll find out the details of that search after this break. And now, back to the story. On November 9th, 1954, Stanley Wazalewski collapsed when he saw his daughter's body at the city morgue. Soon, the entire town was talking, and the men and women of Baltimore were fired up to solve the mystery of Carolyn's murder. By the next day, news of the murder had reached the entire country, making headlines as far as Long Beach, California. In Baltimore, the story would be in the city's papers every day for the next two weeks. The week the body was discovered, police questioned dozens of people. Good or bad, everyone had something to say about Carolyn. Acquaintances who rode the bus with her... She was very good-looking, and she was very fond of boys. Teachers who saw her almost every day... She seemed interested in becoming a good business student. The president of the Lakeland Teenage Club... That girl really loved to dance. Classmates... She was a flashy dresser and changed the color of her hair every week. And of course, her mother had plenty to say. Carolyn was always a very beautiful child, and she was very popular with the boys and girls. By the time the investigation closed, the police would question more than 300 people, and only a handful had useful information in who might have killed Carolyn. One was Carolyn's friend Phyllis, who was a year her senior. All right. Wednesday, 
November 10th, 1954, 2 p.m. State your name? Um, Phyllis Lederhose. Age? 15. Student? Mm. Excuse me? I'm sorry, I'm nervous. I'm at Southern High School where Carolyn goes. Uh, uh, when? Do you believe you know or have any clues into the disappearance and murder of Carolyn? I do. This morning, after we all learned, I was walking home for lunch and a man came up to me and told me that I'd be next. What do you mean? What did he say? Who was it? I don't know. Did you know the man? I've never seen him before in my life. What was he wearing? Um, a blue top coat, I think, and a slouchy hat, knit. What did he say? He came right up to me and said, You know, Frankie, you'll be next. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just scared. It's okay, Phyllis. Do you know which Frankie he might be talking about? <laughs> um, there's only one Frankie I know. He's a bus driver for the city. Sometimes he walks around school. I know he likes to talk to a lot of us, but I never meant to tempt fate. We'll look out for you, Phyllis. Why don't you take a second? So Frankie was added to the list of suspects. If you recall, this Frankie was the same 30-year-old Carolyn had the bad date with. There was also the infamous Paul, who had a tumultuous relationship with Carolyn. Presumably the same Paul whose name was found written in lipstick on her thigh. And there was Johnny, the oil truck driver who denied he even knew Carolyn. On that first day of questioning, Wednesday, November 10th, the police released Johnny because they couldn't connect him to Carolyn. But that same day, they got a lead that could easily place Johnny at the scene of the crime. So they planned to investigate further. The police had at least three suspects in the first days after the murder, plus dozens of friends and acquaintances eager and willing to give information about Carolyn. There was one major missing piece, however. A witness claimed to have seen Carolyn with her neighbor, 45-year-old Ralph Garrett, on the day of the murder. Her parents said they'd never met him, but their daughter knew everyone on the block. It was possible Garrett could shed some light on Carolyn's murder. The police stopped by his house on a few occasions, but he was never home. By Wednesday, November 10th, the day after Carolyn's body was found and identified, the police station was clamoring with people who wanted to help with the case. Carolyn was a popular girl and knew a lot of people, which meant a lot of people flooding the station. Police had to sift through details given by classmates, teachers, acquaintances. People had seen Carolyn that day, but no one yet reported seeing her after 6.15 p.m. when she left her home. But there was one thing that was out of the ordinary. A fireman named Lieutenant Charles Morris reported seeing something strange at about 11.40 p.m. on Monday, November 8th, the night Carolyn disappeared. Under the Belvedere Avenue bridge near where Carolyn's body was found, Lieutenant Morris saw a two-toned car. The car's lights were off. Curious, Morris drove toward it. What on earth are you doing this late on a Monday night? Probably teenagers. Suspicious, Morris pursued the car and saw it run a red light. 
He tried to follow it, but the car was too fast, and he gave up the chase. Two-toned cars were popular in the 1950s, so that detail didn't really narrow the field of suspects. But it did give something for the police to go on in a case that had barely any meaningful leads to that point. So by Wednesday, two days after Carolyn disappeared and the day after she was identified, there were numerous potential suspects. We're not sure exactly how long the list was, but they were mostly people Carolyn had dated. There was Frank, the older trolley driver with Baltimore Transit, who Carolyn had snubbed. There was Johnny, the 30-year-old oil truck driver who frequently met Carolyn at the bus station and initially denied even knowing her. There was Paul, the boyfriend who broke Carolyn's heart and whose name was found written in lipstick on her thigh the night she was murdered. And there was one other person who wasn't quite a suspect but was someone the police wanted to talk to, Ralph Garrett, Carolyn's neighbor who checked in on her every once in a while the same one who saw her with Johnny after school one day. One witness claimed to have seen Ralph speaking with Carolyn the afternoon of her disappearance. Ralph had been called in for questioning, but he wasn't responding. While Dunn and Mintians tried to track down Ralph and interrogate one person after another at the station on Wednesday, November 10th, the detectives found two important new clues, one that had completely opened up the case. First, Carolyn's blood was discovered on the railing of the Belvedere Bridge, just above the train tracks, proving that she was pushed over the side and dragged onto the tracks. Police had suspected this, but up until that point, they weren't sure. The second clue was a tip from Harry C. Gable, who lived just down the street from Carolyn. Baltimore Police Department, Southwestern District, how can I direct your call? Uh, Hello? Hello? Uh... Sir? Yes, uh, I'm calling about something I found on the corner of Washington and Gable, in the vacant lot. Yes, can I help you with something, sir? It looks like blood. A lot of it. There's a large stain in the lot here, and and it runs diagonally to the embankment, where cars are usually parked. All right, sir. Give me your address. Uh, That's 2225 Gable Avenue, in Morrill Park. I'll pass along the message. In that vacant lot, the investigators made a shocking discovery. Along with the bloodstains, they found a gold pendant earring that matched the earring missing from Carolyn's body, plus two sides of a locket and a chain and an aluminum hair curler, all belonging to Carolyn. There was also a blood-stained rock and a wooden screwdriver, though Carolyn's body had no puncture wounds. All of this was found just a block and a half away from the Wazalewski's front door. Police were now convinced this was the site of the murder. Because witnesses said they had seen Johnny, the oil truck driver, and Carolyn meet in the lot on several occasions, he was brought back in for questioning for a second time on Wednesday, the same day he denied knowing Carolyn. You said you didn't know her. I thought you meant someone else. Another Wazalewski? She looks different in person. Older. She was 14. You met her at the bus stop. I'm married, all right? I was with my wife the night you said she was killed. I don't want her to know. But if I have to call her to get you off my back, then I will, okay? Police pressed the issue, and it turned out that Johnny was being tried in another case. But they couldn't connect him to Carolyn on the night of the murder. 
His alibi was sound, and Johnny was cleared of any suspicion. It was another dead end. But Harry Gable had one more tip to give the police. He told them that his neighbor had seen a two-toned car drive in the direction of Carolyn's house every day at 4 p.m. for at least a week before the murder. Harry described the car as a dark-topped, cream-colored car, just like the one Lieutenant Morris spotted under the Belvedere Avenue bridge on the night of Carolyn's murder. That was the car he found parked with the lights off, which sped off and ran a red light. It was a useful detail. However, at the time, two-tone cars were extremely popular. It's possible they weren't the same car. And if they were, it would be extremely difficult to track that car down. Police felt they were at a standstill. And then, on the morning of Thursday, November 11th, the story took an even grimmer turn, deepening the case for the Wazalewskis and everyone in Baltimore. It was less than 72 hours after the murder, and an abandoned two-tone car was found in Anne Arundel County, just south of Baltimore. That same morning, just across the street from where the bloodstains and jewelry were discovered, a man was found dangling from the top of a train car. He was facing the vacant lot and had hung himself with his own belt. Next episode, we'll figure out who this man was and see how this second tragedy altered the investigation of the murder of Carolyn Wazalewski. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review online. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Terry Selicky and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, and Harris Markson. <laughs>